is Professor Chris Smith. Thank you. I, I, when I was uh, elected to this uh, august position, I did think that the students had misunderstood what they had been asked on the ballot. I, I, I figured that a large number of the students had actually thought, been asked the question, would you like to see Ruth Smith give his last lecture? <laughs> With an overwhelming yes. Let me begin by, uh, by thanking the students' associations and also the student body, undergraduates and postgraduate students, for, uh, for this initiative and uh, for selecting me uh, to give this uh, presentation. And I'd like to, it's a great honour, and I'd like to accept that honour on behalf of all of those staff that were nominated to give this. I think uh, when I looked at the list, I noticed an extraordinary group of scholars and teachers and I think this kind of event really should honour them. I think also it should be noted that these scholars... It should also be noted that these scholars were drawn from across the research schools and the faculties. And this is very important for our sense of self-understanding as a community. The teaching is something that is performed with great excellence across the boundaries of the university, which not, should not be boundaries, but in fact channels for communication. One of the things I really like about this event is I, I kind of like dressing up. Um, I, I did, somebody did mention to me that this was kind of like, this, one of the students said, this is like having your own chance to be in Harry Potter. Uh, which I hadn't thought about, but I quite like this idea, except that I have, don't have enough facial hair or enough other hair to do the Dumbledore thing. Um, other comments that I've had from students when they've seen this gown is they've said, that's fantastic, we love this gown. You know, why can't ANU have a PhD gown that looks like that? I didn't really have a good answer to that until I put it on. Uh, on a 25 degree day and remembered that three layers of velvet is uh, really not comfortable wear, uh, particularly if one is animated uh, at all. Um, I'm going, I, if you don't mind, I'm going to take the hat off. Uh, I don't like these things. I used to say it was because it messed my hair up. But uh... <laughs> Now when I think about, when I thought about this, uh, and of course I allowed my name to go forward without really considering the implications of it. In fact, I had a private wager uh, with people that, uh, that in fact there was no way that somebody who could, uh, in a research school, could win this because we simply didn't have enough exposure in front of students. By the way, I should note here that one of my colleagues, when I said that this gown was rather warm, she said, well, you know, in the middle you could take it off. <laughs> I, said, I said to her, the Chancellor's here and that's probably sending the wrong message about good, uh, good lecturing. When I was thinking about what I would give this lecture on, I thought, well, you know, somebody did, somebody suggested, a reporter suggested to me, well, you could talk on nanotechnology when I said I wouldn't tell him. You know, that's not a good idea. I figure it's incumbent on me, since I'm a specialist on international politics, to try and say something about international politics. And one of the sad things about the nature of the world that we live in at the moment is that the grubbier it gets, the more interest there is in the kind of stuff that people like myself do. And in fact that's in one sense a good thing for the ANU because we have one of the biggest concentrations in the world 
of international politics expertise. Uh, and that's something we should be proud of. What I'm going to do today is I'm going to talk about sources of insecurity and instability in the contemporary world. This is probably the biggest public policy issue animating foreign policy experts and it's probably the biggest issue animating scholars of international politics. What kind of world do we live in? Is this a world, is this an international order that is in demise? Is it an international order with such profound sources of instability that we're heading into another period of international turmoil? How do we make sense of this? I think it's incumbent on people like myself to have something to say about this, even if we have many answers. What I want to do is to try and step back from the way in which we normally talk about these issues. We talk about security and instability in the contemporary world in a very ad hoc and reactionary way. We talk about the symptoms, terrorist attacks, competition between great powers. We seldom delve beneath the surface to think about what is it about the nature of the international system in which we live that makes these things possible and what in fact are they symptoms of. So what I'm going to do is try and talk about that. What I want to do is to identify a number of underlying deep systemic processes that are shaping the nature of the world we live in at the moment. I'm going to talk about five of these processes. Now, you know, there's somebody, if we allowed a question and answer session, but I, I said there's no way, I'm not going to talk about this stuff and allow people to question me on it. <laughs> you know, somebody always, if I talk about this kind of stuff, somebody always says, well, you know, I think there's another underlying systemic process that you've forgotten. And usually there is. But I have to say that, you know, the only reason I pick five is because I only think of things in threes and fives. Uh, I, one of the student comments on one of my lectures, first year lectures at Monash was, you know, you could do a numerological study of this guy's lectures. Everything is in threes and fives. <laughs> so we're going to do five. You may think of six or you might say, no, there's only three. But this is my show, so we get five. <laughs> Let me begin with globalisation. Now, globalisation is a term that pretty well everybody in this room has probably heard of. Is, is there anyone here who's never heard of the word globalisation? You never heard of it? We will get a counsellor for you later. <laughs> this, is, this is a very... Um, this is a concept that scholars and policymakers invoke to help them understand the world. I don't usually find it a very helpful concept... It's a concept that, to me, doesn't mean a lot more than the world is getting really, really complicated, really, really fast. It's kind of, that's fun, but it doesn't really help me understand the nature of the world. I mean, I, I read a book about this once from a major theorist of globalisation, and he said... Globalisation is the compression of the time-space continuum. It sounded, sounded to me like something out of Star Trek. 
So I don't find globalisation very helpful. However, now I'm going to contradict myself and I'm going to say that there are two aspects of globalisation that I think are kind of interesting in the present international system. The first is the one that perhaps most people have thought about, but I'll put a sort of different twist on it. And that's what I call the globalisation of liberal economics. Of liberal economics. And when people talk about globalisation and economics, normally they talk about economic practices. They talk about the globalisation of trade, of finance, of production, the extension of all this stuff all over the globe in a kind of web of connections. That's really important. Our lives are transformed by this every day. But what really interests me is the globalisation of a set of ideas. And this is a set of ideas about how states ought to relate to their societies economically. And it's a liberal idea. It's an idea that the state should be what Adam Smith called a night watchman state. It should be a state that withdraws from the economy, leaves most of economic life to market forces, and that the state simply plays a kind of relatively minor regulatory role. Now this idea of how you manage the relationship between states and societies in their economic life has globalised. It has become a global orthodoxy about how states run their economies. For, for better or for worse, I make no judgments about that. It was an idea that dominated how liberal Western states related to each other after the Second World War. In the 1980s, it became orthodoxy in the developing world where developing world countries dropped what had been their campaign for a new international economic order and accepted this new way of thinking about the relationship between their states and their societies and their economies. In the 1990s, the next stage of the globalisation of these ideas was the collapse of the Soviet bloc and the Eastern European countries, all of which then adopted this model of how you manage economic life globally and within societies. Now this idea about how you manage global life is reinforced by the major international financial institutions, the major western states and is accepted by the rulers of most states. The globalisation of this single set of ideas is a unique phenomenon in world history. And it's very important for shaping the world we live in now. Now the second aspect of globalisation is the one that people talk about less. If you pick up a book on globalisation, usually there's an equation that says the more globalisation that you have, the weaker the state becomes. The more the interconnections across the globe, the less sovereignty that states have. Sovereignty of the state, its autonomy, its independence gets weaker the more you have this global web of connections. Now I want to contradict that. I want to tell you that one of the most important aspects of globalisation, an aspect that almost nobody talks about, is the globalisation of the state itself. We live now in a world 
post world in which the entire globe is organised into sovereign states. Every bit of territory is carved up and governed by this thing called a state. This is unique in world history. Most of world history has been a history of empires, city-states, feudal systems, but a world where there is a single system of states is the product of the last 40 years. It is absolutely novel historically. Why are these things important? They're important for two, in two respects. First of all, in this world, this global world of states, most states are baby states. I don't mean that in any disrespectful sense. What I mean is that these are states where the administration of the state has established relatively new relationships with its, its society. Most states in the international system, particularly post-colonial states, are still in the process of establishing this relationship between this thing called the state and the societies and peoples that they govern. So then, that's globalisation. Two faces of globalisation. The globalisation of a set of economic ideas and the globalisation of the state. Okay, now what I want to suggest next, the second systemic process I want to talk about, and here I'm going to use, totally without licence, a kind of economic term. The second process is the closing of political and economic opportunity structures. That's, economists mean that, but basically it just means opportunities. Okay? We are really accustomed in the present world, particularly in the affluent West, to think about the societies that we live in as though they are realms of infinite possibility and choice. But what I want to suggest is that in many respects the forces of globalisation that I've talked about have created one of the most closed economic and political systems globally that has ever existed. There is less opportunity for societies to create alternative economic futures for themselves, to create alternative kinds of political institutions than at any other point in world history. There is less capacity for diversity in the present international system than at any other point in world history. Now that has its pluses and it has its disadvantages, but I think it is a fact. There is less opportunity for societies that are marked by chronic poverty to adopt unique paths to transform their economic futures. There are less possibilities for peoples to adopt different kinds of political organisation than at any other point in world history. 
The international system of states has, at last count, about 193 states. The borders of those states are secured by military capacity and by international law. There is no capacity to revise those boundaries, to revise those states, short of violence or ad hoc internal transformations. When the international system, after the Second World War, decolonised the European empires, it did so in part through a process, a law-governed process, through the United Nations that determined which polities, which peoples were entitled to self-determination. So there was an institutional mechanism to revise the European imperial order. There is no such system today, institutional system, to revise the nature of this international system. Okay, now why, is this, why might this be a problem? It's a problem for two reasons. It's a problem, first of all, because the nature of the international system we live in, its, eco its economy is not perceived as just by very large numbers of people internationally. We may look at the international system and think, oh yeah, we do kind of all right out of it and, you know, a little bit of trickle down, it'll be kind of all right for the rest of them. But for large numbers of the world's population, the international system as it looks today produces chronic hardship and it is not perceived as just. The second reason we should be concerned about it is because despite all of the language about the triumph of democracy internationally, the vast majority of states are still unresponsive to the basic needs of their peoples. They, many states are not democratic in any sense. And many of the ones that are democratic in a technical sense are only so, only so in a formal sense, not in the sense of actually providing real mechanisms for their people's aspirations to be reflected in policy. So what I want to suggest is the problem with an international system that becomes where the opportunities for economic reform and the opportunities for political reform, the problems of that system is when it is over, overlaying a world marked by chronic poverty and political alienation. And you know, some people will turn around and say, oh look, but you know, if you look at the statistics, if you open up the borders and you allow free trade, you'll get a trickle-down effect. Eventually these populations get raised up. That may be true. It may absolutely be true. But you know, it misses the point. It misses the point because the real issue for global insecurity and instability is the gap between that making any difference and the lived experiences of people that are fundamentally dissatisfied. The timing is just completely out of sync. You may, that process may yield results in 50 years, but in many parts of Africa, many parts of the Middle East and elsewhere, that means little to the people who are experiencing this.
me go on to the third systemic process that I want to talk about. And this is what I'm going to call the domestication of war. Now historically, there have been three different kinds of violence that shaped the world. The first is what we call traditional interstate violence. This is the violence of established armies against each other, usually fought over territory, but historically over all sorts of things, including dynastic marriage. This kind of violence is what our armed forces are generally prepared to do. War against other armies over basic things to do with the nature of states. The second kind of violence, though, equally as prevalent, is what I call the violence of state-making. This is the violence that states commit against their own peoples when political elites want to establish their authority. When you look at this, there is almost no example of a sovereign state having been created that did not involve this kind of violence. The violence that occurs when political elites turn against their own populations to establish their power and authority and create homogeneous national identities. That's the second kind of violence. The third kind of violence is what I call anti-systemic violence. This is the violence that is committed by groups who fundamentally oppose the way an international system is organised. They fundamentally oppose, they're not interested in grabbing a bit of territory, they're not interested in, in establishing their authority and creating a state, well not primarily, they're interested in opposing the nature of the system itself. This kind of violence has been a recurrent feature of international history. You can go back and you can find anarchist movements, Luddite movements, all the way through to Al-Qaeda. These movements, not all anti-systemic movements use violence. Most don't. But there are anti-systemic movements that resort to violence to oppose the nature of the system. Now the nature of the world we're in now has been a, is a product of these three forms of violence interplaying with each other. But you know there's been a really interesting shift over the last century, particularly in the last 50 years. Since the second end of the Second World War, there has been a dramatic decline in the incidence of traditional interstate warfare. This is true not only in absolute terms, the raw numbers of state of interstate wars, which have declined, it's true dramatically in relative terms. Because in the last 50 years, the number of sovereign states has multiplied by, let's take 51 when the United Nations was founded, multiplied to 193 now. The number of states has multiplied, the state system has globalised, but the incidence of war has declined. That is a remarkable historical achievement. And it is one of the great success stories of this stabilisation, this globalisation of the system of states. One that we forget about. 
And let me tell you, if the incidents of warfare, the interstate warfare, had remained the same, and the number of sta- and, but it increased with the number of states, you want to think we live in an anarchy? That's another world. So that's decreased. The second kind of violence, interestingly, has also decreased. It is still an appalling feature of the world we live in. But civil wars, for example, which are a a, a manifestation of this, have declined as well. Which is interesting because during the 1990s a lot of us were told that in fact the end of the Cold War produced an outbreak of global incivility. People's fighting against each other, ethnic groups and so forth. Simply not true, empirically. There's been a decline. Now the only kind of violence that has increased has been anti-systemic violence. It's the only kind of violence that's increased in this international system. Now, what I'm going to say here, and this is one of my punchlines, is that I don't think this is surprising. If you have a world where you have an international system with limited economic and political opportunities for transformation, no institutional mechanisms for changing the nature of polities, the nature of states, If you have that kind of system overlaying fundamental and chronic poverty and political alienation, then you're going to see two things. One characteristic of it will be the stabilisation of the system of states will result in fewer interstate wars, but the absence of any mechanisms for reform of that system and transformation of it through institutional means will mean that disenchantment will be expressed in the form of conflict, anti-systemic conflict and violence. That is how it will be manifest. I'm not excusing this in any way. What I'm saying is I don't think it's surprising given the nature of the international system that we live in. This brings me to the fourth systemic force that I want to talk about and that is the revolution in military affairs. And I'm very conscious of having our Chancellor sitting here who knows a hell of a lot more about this than I do. Now there's this thing called the revolution in military affairs. What it means for those of you that have not uh, pleasantly been acquainted with this concept is that there's been a transformation in the technology of warfare. The transformation in the technology of warfare such that those that have the benefits of this advanced communications, computer technology, can deploy force with great accuracy and with great impunity. The revolution in military affairs gives political actors that benefit from this technology the ability to deploy force with great accuracy and with great impunity. Now there's a standard equation that you get in the literature. And the equation is, if you are a state that has the benefit of the revolution in military affairs affecting the nature of your military, then that gives you enhanced political power. 
Right? Because you can, go, you can use force in all sorts of novel ways that other states can't use it. Well, first of all, I think the fact, the idea that you can use it in lots of different ways is true. But I don't think it increases your political power. You know why I don't think it increases your political power? Because what it does is it encourages beneficiaries of this technology to reach for the gun before they have exhausted all possible political solutions to conflicts. It encourages the assumption on the part of policymakers that force is an option that has lower costs than it would have if they did not have the benefit of this technology. And it also, it is not just a problem for policymakers, it also encourages peoples to think this. Now one of the things that I noted, and I think this is, this is an indication of this, is the debate that has surrounded Australia's involvement in Iraq has never been a debate about the loss of Australian lives. It was a debate about whether this was a smart thing to do to deal with Iraq and to preserve international order. It was never a debate about Australian lives. And I think that's very different from the Vietnam era. Even in the United States now where the number of deaths is now getting pretty close to 3,000, it's only now starting to bite as a political issue. And I think that indicates the, the, the kind of way this affects political decision making. And I think it encourages states that have this kind of technology to reach for the gun before they have exhausted all possible political avenues. Now the last thing I want to talk about is American power. Somebody said to me, why don't you talk on American power when I was thinking about this because I wrote a book about it. And I thought, you know, this, this makes me really bored. Um, I, I, I launched my book in this hall and I'm pretty sure there are some people who were at that or I put them off so much. But I, I couldn't resist it when it came down to it. I had to say something about American power because the international system is what we call a unipolar system. It's an international system in which the material power, that is guns and money, are concentrated in the hands of a single state. This is pretty unique. American scholars like to use the kind of language when they write about this, that never since the days of Rome has there been a state so powerful as the United States. And, you know, I, I always thought that was either a misunderstanding of the nature of American power or a really poor understanding of Rome. But, <laughs> never mind. All I want to say about American power is this. The thing that interests me about it is how a state that can have that degree of material advantage can be having so much trouble translating that advantage into sustained political influence. And by political influence, what I mean is the ability to produce intended outcomes as opposed to unintended outcomes. Now I reckon the United States, the Bush administration, whatever one may think about it, 
even by its own account now, would have to be looking at the scorecard saying, well, you know, a lot of that stuff didn't work, did it? And Iraq is, of course, the most celebrated example of that. Why is this the case? Why is it that a state with such an advantage can be having so much trouble translating that into sustained political influence? And my answer to that is that I think the Bush administration fundamentally misunderstands the nature of power. Because power doesn't rest just on guns and money. It rests on a thing called legitimacy. And legitimacy is not something that you can self-ordain yourself with. You can't stand up and say, I'm really legitimate, I am, I'm legitimate, I'm legitimate, I'm legitimate, I'm legitimate, I'm legitimate, and if you haven't heard me, I'm legitimate. If none of you believe it, I am not legitimate. Legitimacy is a social concept. It refers to social recognition. And for anyone to be legitimate, you have to establish a right to rule or a right to act. And that cannot come about simply through the exercise of material power. So, how do we put all this stuff together for me to finish? I'm not sure. (laughs) Hang on, you've got to wait for the rest of it. I'm not sure. (laughs) I don't have any answers. But I think it's time that those of us that are interested in these questions and also peoples who get to vote for governments need to start thinking a little bit more about the nature of the world in which we live underlying forces that are transforming our economic experience, our economic welfare, that are producing the conditions of justice and injustice. We need to think about that actually in the same way that people thought about this at the end of the Second World War. This is not historically unprecedented. At the end of the Second World War, a decision was made about how you govern the international system to prevent global wars like the First World War and the Second World War, about how you prevent economic catastrophes like the Great Depression, and decisions were made over time about how you decolonise the European empires. All of this involved thinking imaginatively about the kinds of institutions that we create at home and at the level of the international system. Most of what we know at the international system in terms of institutions was created at that moment. The United Nations, the World Bank, the IMF, which was the last one, World Trade Organization, all of the major human rights instruments were all created in this context to deal with what were perceived as the underlying causes of disorder. This kind of thinking is not unprecedented, but there are few that are thinking through what it means to rework 
the nature of an international system to deal with its underlying sources of instability and insecurity. And I'll finish there.